I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to season five of And The Writer Is with your host, Ross Golan. Before I give my spiel, I want to acknowledge the music army that listens to this podcast every week. Since starting this, the And The Writer Is community has literally changed the history of the music business by helping pass the Music Modernization Act, gotten songwriters added to Album of the Year for the Grammys, and still is advocating for positive changes for our industry on a daily basis. So thank you and congrats. Now, as you know, I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. This week's episode is sponsored by BMI. Full disclosure, Joe and I are both BMI songwriters, so we didn't write this, but we believe it. BMI, we celebrate your talent, value your music, and champion your rights. To all our songwriters and composers, your passion is ours. BMI, music moves our world. This episode is brought to you by Abco Music home to iconic music catalogs of the 20th century, including Sam Cooke, Ray Davies, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, and Bobby Womack. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Rewind. Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. They've also been an advocate for the songwriting community for more than 50 years. So check out www.abco.com. That's A-B-K-C-O.com. Songwriters, think about your favorite hit song and what makes it an earworm. You could be the writer behind the next song and that goes viral. Enter the 20th Annual NSAI Song Contest presented by Martin Guitars and Strings and CMT. You could win several prizes, including the one-on-one mentoring session with L. King, myself, and fellow and the writer is producer Joe London. The lyric-only winner will score $2,000 cash and mentoring session with award-winning songwriter Tom Douglas, as well as other coveted prizes. Send in your best songs now through October 31st at nsai.cmt.com. 
Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's alt-rock superhero and multi-platinum songwriting producer has not just fronted his own successful rock band, but helped shape the zeitgeist by defining so many others. His unique musical intuition has maintained relevancy over 20 years. Now, we've been friends since we wrote at a writing camp in Aspen in 2012, which goes to show that writing camp Camps aren't only about writing, but also about meeting people. But I digress. It was there that I learned that this left coaster's standout qualities is his humor and humility. That feels like that might be grammatically incorrect, but I'm going to keep it. Anyway, I should just shut up and dance. (laughs) (laughs) And the writer is my friend, Tim Pagnata. Dude, thank you. That was one hell of an introduction. I feel like, will you send that to me after the hang? No. That, that needs to be. Like you you will once it's up. <laughs> it, should, it should be. It'll be your entrance music. Yeah, I want to put that on a Christmas card that goes out to all my enemies. Oh my god! Just the face off. Like, do you have? Do you have people? Because you are like the you. You seem like somebody who who's never had an enemy in his life. Um, are there people? Do you have a shit list? Well. Dude, the the pop punk world could be pretty brutal. I don't remember there was. I, I don't know about. Like, I have a shit list, an, an so enemy. everyone has a shit list. But do you I have, have like, a shit list? I don't know if I have like enemies. I definitely there's like if you're putting yourself out there, there's definitely a certain amount of trolling here and there. Yeah. Are there people that you're proving wrong? Mm, I don't know. I don't know if it's as deep as that. Maybe just like. Like, uh, yeah, just a few chatter here and there. I think there was a minute, like, in the pop punk world where you'd read everything that someone would write about you back when you were in a band, and, oh, it would fucking cut deep. Or, of course, you, you like, make a record, pour your heart and soul into an album and write and produce and be a part of, like, what you feel is, like, the best thing you've, you've, you've worked on, and then you hear a couple of bad reviews. There's a famous quote out there I think David Lee Ross has where it's like, and I'm going to fully botch it, I'm going to pull the, the George Bush where, where you're on the spot and completely <laughs> just ruin here's, the quote. Wasn't, here, there's a famous yeah, quote it where it's just a, like, <laughs> fool me once, fool me, once, fool me and, twice. And then he, and then he and, passed out and yeah, cried. Yeah. Right. No, I think there is um, the David Lee Roth quote somewhere along the lines of, it's like when I, uh, whatever, it's like when I, when I see something good about me, it's, it's like on whatever level seven, and when I read something bad about me, it's like negative one hundred. So, um, so I'll take what you wrote, and that will be the yeah. new. That's like the new mission statement for my life. That's the big with with a Xerox middle finger. Why is it that <laughs> artists? Because I think a lot of us have that have that intuition. Um, Intuition where, or insecurity, or insecurity. No, that's right. I mean, if I have no yeah. doubt, if I have uh, a thousand comments and um, oh, you read and nine hundred ninety-eight of them were positive, but two were like, "This is trash." Oh yeah, I, I would for sure think that I I need to address those two notes. I know we do it. Like I was on Yelp the other day. I can't remember what I was looking up, but I was like seeking out the one star, and uh, yeah. And like, man, this person got really nasty. They didn't get a callback from the uh, from the business or whatever. But yeah, in terms of what we do, well, I mean, we put ourselves out there so much and rally the room so hard to get behind an idea. And and I've had 
you know, th- by the way, like you're, everyone's a critic now. That's, that's also such a difficult thing and everyone has a platform and there's obviously so many reasons why, you know, social media is, has been amazing and the, the ability to be able to um, throw your opinions out there is, is awesome. But, but the double-edged sword is, yeah, you, you like, you'll discover some shit out there that's not very, very pleasant and, and it, and it still rocks your boat a bit. I was talking about the same thing with a, with a friend of mine, like, um, you know, and we'll get onto this a little bit later, but just because it kind of came up recently, like I just worked with Blink on, uh, on a couple songs on their new record. And, and, and when they released the first single, I'm so psyched. It's this complete mix of emotion. Songs come out. It's getting played on, on K-Rock like five times a day. And I'm, and I'm looking up to see what, you know, the responses are and how people are digging it. Just, just thinking like, man, it's going to be awesome. People are freaking out. The sound's so new. It's so fresh. And people are like, what the fuck did this guy do to my favorite band? Oh, my God. And, like, there's cover songs of people covering the song, doing it as they thought would be a better version of it. And it kind of bummed me out. It was did, like, they, did, they, did any of them nail it? Did you listen to them? There's actually one arrangement where I was <laughs> yeah. like, I like the guitar part. That was pretty sweet. Can yeah. we lift that? Maybe put it in like the remix. I don't. Do you do you know the Theodore Roosevelt quote about this? No. Okay, ready. Bring it. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat." That's a great quote. That's a about, great quote. Uh, that, that'd be a long reply a, text. I don't know if it would yeah. fit in the body of a of a of a response, It'd but so I love geni- the spirit. Yeah, just Mills a genius is, yeah. to be like you know. It's like the critic doesn't do shit. They their job, their job is to give an opinion, which is really interesting. Why isn't music just enjoyed or not enjoyed? I mean, that's a deep philosophical question. Um, I don't know if I have the answer to that. Um, what kind of music do you enjoy? I, I mean, I love everything. God, you know, if this would, this would go back, this would have to go back pretty far. So I can talk about like the first time, you know, the, my, some of my first introductions to music. Sure, let's yeah. start from the beginning. Yeah, so you're, yeah. you're. Uh, so I was born in San, I was born in San Diego. Okay. So I'm I'm a little bit of a California rat. Uh huh. Um, parents are uh, your parents yeah, siblings. I was born in two thousand, so that makes me nineteen. Uh huh. Um, You've been nineteen a while, a long time. Yeah. No, I was uh, I was a kid of the eighties. Okay. Early eighties, possibly late seventies, but we could we'll probably edit that. But we're split, out. That's we're fine. splitting hairs. So fine. We're so splitting fine. hairs. Yeah. I'm only like fifteen years away from like the AARP club, right? right. Where you yeah. Get, like, discounts. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah. at Costco for everything. So um, the truth of that hurts. Yeah, oh God, it's so <laughs> painful. Stay young, kids. Just yeah, like just stay young. S- stay in that chirogenic chamber. Is that what the yeah you know, cryo cry, cryo yeah. yeah. Um, no, I was a kid in in uh, I'm a California rat. So I, yeah, I grew up in San Diego. My my uh, my dad was was actually in the Navy, and my mom was an Army nurse. The, the San Diego. Yeah, yeah, the San Diego, like um, Miramar base was like the, it was, it was the Navy base down what there. What was your dad in the Navy? He ended up retiring as a captain, uh-huh. so he got pretty far. Yeah. Um, but then he they, they ended up having career changes and he went into like the tech world. Um, they were really focused and serious on, you know, with business. And my mom went from being an army, overprotective army nurse to then selling real estate. Um, they're originally were they strict the way you envision military parents to be? Not really. Yeah, it's funny. They're pretty liberal. Like they're especially now, their political views have always been pretty liberal. Like, which which kind of bucks the norm, I think, typically for military families. Um, but. Um, and there was instruments around the house. I think they're like, like, you know, there were leftover instruments from like, from the '60s. You know, folk, folk guitars, piano. I remember at an early age, my mom would be singing. She can sight read music. She's like a somewhat of a real musician, in in that regard. Where, um, you know, there would be a lot of carols around the holidays and stuff like that, and sing-alongs and and and. Um, but uh, but they had the record. They had like a reel to reel and a record collection. And my parents were were pretty into music as as a kid. So so there was a there was like the sacred stereo in my parents' room that for the most part was pretty off limits until like one day I was taught how to use it. And the records at the time were like um, Huey Lewis and the News. That's my first concert. Oh, that stuff is just that is like the best music ever. Yeah. Like if that could just if that could if I could do that over and over again, that would be an amazing life. Yeah. Um, just make records like that. And I and I try to, by the way. There's always a little Huey Lewis in, in everything. For sure. I was gonna, so but cheeky. It, but oh yeah, I mean that's true. There's a sense of humor. Oh yeah. In a lot they're of so fu- yeah, yeah. So, so like that and then like like big '80s records, Duran Duran, uh, Cindy Lauper, um, Tears uh, for Fears, Tears for Fears, all yeah, all that stuff. Uh, Michael Jackson. So that was uh, like that the excess, maybe. Uh, that That's was, probably later. That was a little bit later, yeah. and that was when I really started noticing production because that was like a separate thing. You start realizing how like certain records sound better than sure. other than other albums. Some albums were a little more of a live performance where you could kind of hear air in the room, and then others were like the most hi-fi. It was like a renaissance period of of like. Of records and production and and all of these extra tools to help enhance the songs, um, so so yeah, so I grew up in San Diego and just list, like studied these records as a kid, um, and it wasn't I didn't really start picking up an instrument till there was a um, a nearby neighbor um, misfit that had a drum set with like a crazy and now this is still the eighties where like every drum set was required to have like. Six more toms than yeah, ever a double, necessary. And a double bass. Pedal. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was like super dialed. Huh. Exactly. Not even just, not a double bass drum because that would be too expensive. Right. The, the pedals, the like pedal. the cheat uh, code yeah. for the for it. Um, and so there was a kid up the street that had one of those, and we would just blast Van Halen songs and try to memorize the the fills. And like, and speaking of fills, Phil Collins, another huge. 
Well, all that music, all those influences are more song esque versus the, you know, the remnants of Kiss or the, you know, that the real hair metal. Like you're not mentioning Def Leppard. You're not really mentioning. No, but I kind of got. I kind of got into that. I I did a little later on. I actually got into that. Yeah, and and I'll and I'll finally. and I'll finally bring it up. I don't think I've ever like really talked about how much I I really dug Poison and Bon Jovi, Warrant, probably all of the records that like real metalheads hated. It, right. It was like it was a pop. It was the She's My Cherry Pie. Oh, I love stuff that like band. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that band was awesome. I think they're from Glendora. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did you go see these bands live? No, I was still a kid. So then I was still like probably fourth or fifth grade. But but I was still really into music, and that was like an, an, the era of making mixtapes for all your friends and and um, and another kid like moved in the neighborhood. That was like the the thing where it's you know, and someone new would move in that had some more like badass, dangerous music taste than you did make you a mixtape, you're hearing Led Zeppelin for the first time, maybe someone's like busting out a joint uh, for the first time and you're way too young um, to be getting into that kind of like craziness. For example, um, did that actually happen? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean that was like, I feel like we were, we were, we were wild. What maniacs. was your what was your instrument at that point? Guitar, okay, so right? no, so my parents, I I uh, I got off track. So my parents somehow, I don't know what the fuck they were thinking. But we begged. I would get like a a toy drum set every Christmas, and we would destroy it like like a Rottweiler on a toy for like five minutes. We would get my parents would get us a toy drum set. We'd beat the crap out of it, ruin the heads until finally they were like, okay, like three Christmases in a row of getting these these kits. We got to finally actually get a, a real drum set. So um, we went down to Ozzy's Music. And by the way, the town that I lived in. Um, and it will come back around again in this. It's, it's a town called Poway in San Diego. It's like pretty east. They call it like, has one of these nicknames, like a slice of country in the city or city. I'm, again, I'm <laughs> yeah. totally, yeah, you get it. Yeah. Any combination of those words, sure. you'll, you'll fill the blanks. Yeah. Right. <laughs> city in the country. There we go. So the town was Poway. We got a drum set, a CB700 sparkle red wine Kit um, from Ozzy's music. Who's we? Your parents and you and brother and your brother. So was he also playing drums? Yeah, I mean, I think like brothers um, kind of share the same shit. You know, like how close are you in age? um, Four years apart, and he became a bit of a like a filter of of new music too. You know, like I would say, discovering music came from peers and listening to the radio quite a bit too, and and. and then, uh, yeah, and stuff that would kind of funnel through him. And we were still at this point pretty young. Like, this is, you know, 10, 12. Like, it's pretty, pretty young. They started early with a, with a drum kit. This thing was super loud. Neighbors hated it. Um, pro- my parents probably got it because they thought we'd just stay home more. You know, if you're, like, home, the idea is that you'll get into less trouble because you'll be less ballsy to really break the law within the house. Um, which wasn't always the case. So we got this drum kit, um, and that was my first instrument. And still to this day, um, I mean, I'm, I kind of, I'm sort of a, a bit of a hack guitar player. That came later. Um, 
I got into so it, so I learned the drums and I took drum lessons and and never got like crazy good. I mean, I think at that point the goal was like if one day I could join the marching band, that would be so awesome because they do these like fancy paradiddles and stick clicks and got to wear the outfits. And I probably love the the theatrics of it all more than anything. You know, like the idea of coming up and playing instrument. The idea was like maybe one day the instrument is going to be this spaceship that could take me to a stage. Right. You know, that was like the goal. Like someone gets a Les Paul or like an American Strat. That was always the thing. Like, oh my gosh, is it made an American Strat? Holy shit, it's the Holy Grail instrument. You know, like, uh, you know, where would spread like wildfire when someone would get a sick instrument in the neighborhood. And then there's a few lightning rod moments that planted instruments in my hand. One um, was discovering Back to the Future. Yeah, and I've and I've come across a few friends of mine that like had a musical moment watching Back to the Future, and I don't know if it's a combination of like the innocence and the age and the time in America and all of those sorts of things. Huey combined. Lewis was huge, and Hugh- it was like the you know like a massive push towards that. Plus, that was the biggest movie. It was a different time where movies were made for. It felt like for adolescent boys. Oh, dude, it was crazy. Like the, you had all those movies that were happening in the mid eighties were yeah. made for. Like teenage girls and adolescent boys felt like those were like the the demographics. So many movies based in that mindset, and now I don't feel like that's really the case. It's like they're it's like blockbusters yeah. or it's imagine Netflix. If, yeah, imagine if like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter somehow snuck someone who shredded at guitar halfway in the. Probably yeah, a different music, yeah, music uh, scene. Yeah. <laughs> that's sort of what that is. <laughs> exactly. It's probably yeah. So that and um, La Bamba, yeah, damn, that yeah. one still bring me to my knees. Anytime I want to like get in touch with my emotions, yeah, the last ten minutes of La Bamba will take me down crying. Anytime. That's that's free therapy right there. Yeah. My and there, my dad had an electric guitar that was kind of stashed away that I that I started kind of picking up and playing a couple of chords. I was still pretty pretty young and and like just learned a few riffs. At that time it was like it was just cover cover songs. Um and then we we ended up moving around quite a bit. Like when I was living in San Diego, I we went to like my, at that time my mom was in real estate, and we moved to like I went to like three different no four different elementary schools, three different junior highs, and then so you know like standard friends. Just, so we, music becomes your your one study. It's just kind of a little yeah. bit, yeah. You, yeah. You're you're the kid on the block that's making friends because you have the drum set in the room and yeah. like some amps and a guitar or whatever. Yeah. And then and then my dad got the call to work and it was they were moving to Colorado and it was just this total devastation. Like oh my god, I'm moving halfway through junior high, you know, the first year of junior high to Colorado, and uh, moved out there and. And it was just kind of a short stint. It was like two years there. Kind of got into like the mountains and skiing and all that sort of stuff. And um, and the drums lived in the basement. They probably got a little more dusty than in years past. And then then from there, this is now like early high school. Then we moved to Colorado. Sorry, then we moved to the Bay Area. And and that was probably when like that was like that just that like moment of adolescent where adolescents were like you where everything kind of comes into focus you're like you wear your interests like 
on your sleeve. You're, you're like, and, and we were talking about this a friend of mine earlier today, actually, about like there was a moment in time where you could see someone like rock across the street wearing a pair of, you know, Chuck Taylors and black jeans and, and probably guess what five bands they listen to. Yeah. Now we live in such a different world. Yeah. You have no, no idea. But, but yeah, when I lived in the Bay Area, then it was like started dyeing my hair, um, started getting into like Green Day. Now this is 90s. So it's like in prime 90s. So like at this prime. point you're playing guitar. So now I'm starting to play guitar. Pri- like prime 90s, like it's like Nirvana. Then a couple of years later, it's like Green Day, and it spans like Faith No More and and uh, Lollapalooza and Smashing Pumpkins, and yeah. like that was you just couldn't get away from it. It was just Butch my Vig era. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. And that that was my life. That was that was um, yeah. That was like that was my uniform every day. And that's how. When I, did you start writing songs? So then, really, I didn't start writing songs till. Um, I moved down from I graduated high school, moved from um, moved from the Bay Area down to Santa Barbara, and got turned on. I had a roommate that turned me on to like all of the stuff that I think influenced some of the things that I was a big fan of. Like, like I started like, like Green Day was a gateway to some of like other bands that had that same tempo, and then I started getting into what types of music that influenced you know those records, like. Elvis Costello, like really clever songwriting. All, all of a sudden now lyrics became important and I wasn't just following, you, you know, yeah, just wasn't melodies. All, yeah. But I think kind of a few things. I had a lightning rod moment um, that was probably chemically induced at Lollapalooza when I was in high school. And that was like, holy shit, I want to play music for the rest of my life. This is it. I found it at an early age. This gave me like the, the vision, the mission statement and set my GPS coordinates for a life of, of, of this, of what we do. Um, but I, I started taking like actual songwriting seriously or somewhat seriously when I was, um, you know, when I was living in Santa Barbara, I had an acoustic guitar. I started kind of dissecting some of these songs. And I think what was cool at the time was like Nirvana songs were, were pretty easy to sing and play and they didn't require like, a ton of vocal range. So they were just easy songs to, to pull off. And then it became, I was just, I had an acoustic guitar all the time. I was just the guy that was probably like the weirdo that had the acoustic. I traveled with it everywhere. I would, and then it became like and you know, now going, up, going up and, and, <laughs> and, and like meeting girls and singing songs. And like, and that was the, that was the thing. I was the, I was the asshole that like tried serenading a room with an acoustic guitar at, at a, at a party. Yeah, man. That probably really pissed a lot of people ah, off. Like, still dude, living that. Get the, get that guy out of there. Still He's my life like, to this day, dude. <laughs> totally. I know. I know. I I thought the, about- the cool thing about Nirvana and and also being a drummer. First of all, Dave Grohl is the most singable drummer of all time. It's like you can sing all those drum parts. This sounds like a racial stereotype, but white people when they try to write songs and they think they're writing melodies, they think that means a lot of notes. But they don't think they think up and down, down and up, long, short. But they don't think really rhythm. Mm-hmm. They don't think about how singable rhythms can be oh, and how yeah. hooky rhythms can be. They're always looking for that crazy, you know, we are young melody, and they're much less likely to write, you know, this like quirk, Syn- yeah, syncopated, quirky syncopated, sure, you sure. know. Well, the kind of melody that a drummer would write, 
Yeah. And there's a reason why Foo Fighters ended up being so huge, and it's because you had a drummer as the lead singer. And if you grow up listening to Nirvana and that era, especially if you're a drummer so you're attuned to it, I can imagine that being a massively positive influence on on writing. If the first songs you're playing, because if you're playing Carter Beaufort, you know, like early Dave Matthews, oh, yeah, yeah. You're, it's really hard to like sing those parts. There might be some hooks here or there, but you know, you'd have to be a, a just a genius to be able to write totally. that in a melody. But you could write a melody to all of those yeah, Dave Grohl. Totally, yeah. Parts. And he's he's you know like the ultimate drummer. Um, you know, that like plays for the song, obviously. But uh, yeah, so I started writing songs and, and, um, and, I, and, and I remember just having a summer where I just got totally bitten by the bug. And I've heard this happening with, with, with other people that like that got into their sort of year one of writing songs. And, and I think one summer I wrote like 25 songs. None of them were any good. They were just little verses and choruses. But for me, I was just trying to figure out I mean, it was just very self-taught. I was just trying to figure out and copy, like learn as much covers as possible, kind of get an idea of what's going on in those songs. Some of it's, some of it a bit subconscious, knowing that, okay, well, chorus needs to lift, probably need to get to it, you know, within a certain amount of time. And, and I was just writing these really innocent sounding, like pop songs. Do you remember the first song you wrote? Um, yeah, yeah, it was terrible. What was it called? Um, uh, it was... It was called, uh, what was it called? Something like Red, oh yeah. If I had an acoustic, I could probably figure it out. Um, but, oh, I, but I only, see, only we had but I only see six right acoustics here. around yeah, here. So exactly. like, why would I ever want to do it? No, yeah. no, no. We do it. But I'll, I'll, it was like red hair, and she don't care. And it was my friend's golden retriever. Oh, wow. really deep? Yeah. yeah well, I yeah, mean, really wasn't uh, not uh, what's the um, what's the Beatles one about? Uh, the one that's in it's in D. It's in on the White Album. It's like that. The third song on the album, um, I'll figure it out. We'll but they have one that was yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, people yeah, write yeah, about the dogs. Be- if the Beatles did it, then the of Beatles course, did it like, for sure. Songwriters, you could be the grand prize winner and score up to $5,000 in cash, one of 12 Martin guitars, as well as a mentoring session with El King, Joe London, or myself. The Lyric winner will win an opportunity to be mentored by award-winning songwriter Tom Douglas, as well as other coveted prizes. Enter the 20th annual NSAI Song Contest presented by Martin Guitar Strings and CMT now through October 31st at nsai.cmt.com. NSAI, the National Songwriters Association International is one of the biggest supporters of songwriters and played a major role in helping pass the Modernization Act, a historical piece of legislation that allows you to have a future as a songwriter. This is your opportunity to experience industry access, one-on-one mentorship with hit songwriters, and fund your creative passions. Song and lyric-only categories are open now for submissions. We can't wait to hear your songs. This week's episode is sponsored by BMI. At BMI, music moves their world just like it moves mine. BMI is my performing rights organization. They're the bridge between people who create music, like me, and the businesses that bring it to the public. They make sure I get paid when my music is streamed on apps or shows, played on radio, at live shows, or in bars, gyms, basically anywhere where music is played. And they do this for over 900,000 songwriters, composers, and music publishers with more than 
14 million songs across genres. But it's more than that. They help us navigate the music industry. They create opportunities for aspiring writers and composers through stages at festivals, song camps, and workshops. And they connect us with the right people. They're also on Capitol Hill fighting for copyright protection and fair royalties. And they work hard to ensure the future of music. They have my back and they'll have yours. Learn more at BMI.com. This episode is brought to you by Abco Music, home to iconic music catalogs of the 20th century, including Sam Cooke, Ray Davies, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, and Bobby Womack. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's rewind. Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. They've also been an advocate for the songwriting community for the last 50 years. So go check out www.abco.com. That's A-B-K-C-O.com. So I started writing some songs and... um, and and I could tell they were getting a little better. And I started pulling together, I started pulling together some friends to start a band. And this is so this is still in Santa Barbara. And I was going to the community college up there. And um and and I had like, I mean, I had somewhat of a demo. I mean, my demo at the time was was a just me singing into like a dictaphone recording. And out of nowhere, I remember coming home from school like a class one day and on my voicemail was someone that worked at Warner Brothers Records. And it was like, hey, I heard you're a songwriter and someone told me about your music and who, I really like to Who was it who heard it? Um, he is someone who's not in the, in the business anymore. Um, and it was like kind of a, a younger guy at the company and we and ended up turning into, and I'll, and I'll get there in a how sec. Did they, how did they hear these demos? A friend of mine was like, I think a friend of mine was tr- was playing his music for somebody, and in the small talk, um, and in the small talk of like, oh, where are you from? Or is there like, what's the music scene like up in Santa Barbara? Is there is there anything like out up there that I should know about? And my buddy said, oh yeah, actually, there's this guy who's a friend of mine, Tim, you know, uh, and he's like probably going to start a band, and he's writing these cool songs. You should check him out. And and uh, he came up, and I like sang this guy some songs, and we ended up. Um, like continuing talking, and I got a. I ended up signing a terrible production deal. That I will say this for the listeners out there: if anyone gives you a contract, have somebody look it over. Not like a family attorney, but like a legit attorney, like five times because there was a moment where we like could have signed something crazy, like fifty percent of publishing and 50% of everything for seven albums if we got a record deal within this time frame. It was like the deepest, it was like the deepest uh, production deal. And it, luckily it ended up lapsing. But we uh, we ended up getting a development deal at Warner Brothers where they had us like, I, so I put a band together and, um, and called it Sugar Cult. And we came down to LA and recorded at a super fancy studio and recorded a few songs that were terrible. Um, thankfully, we got passed on. Um, 
Why, thankfully, you got past them? Oh, they were just like, they were, we were so green at the time. Did you think they were good at the time? Or Prob- were you like, oh, this is not... Probably, but like in hindsight, it was just so different than what we ended up becoming as a band. So then, really, I think we went back to Santa Barbara and, and, and the uh, from the start of like forming Sugar Cult, the our band, to then getting a record deal, it was a pretty short amount of time. It was like a year and a half. And we... We just like played. It was a great town to, to start a band in, where the, the local radio station would play us. We were pretty self-contained. Our drummer Ben had this awesome, like, super primitive, like, digital four track where we would make these these demos that sounded pretty decent, and they would get played on the radio. and And we would play these venues up there, like the Wildcat, and gosh, the one called the Yucatan, and um, there's like there's so many. Um, there's a place called the living room that would do, uh, all ages shows out in Goleta and people were just passing your music along and that's, is that, or were you just sort of, it didn't matter who was showing up or were well, you building no, a following? We were kind of building a following. It was like, we were, we sped up, we, I would say we sped our music up like 20 BPM and mm-hmm. found a place for our music. We were, we were super high energy. We were like big on style at the time. We all wear suits. We all thought we were like a power pop band from like the late seventies. That was like the the model. And but it was kind of back at that point. It, yeah, Maybe that was partly because what you were doing that was, was bringing that back. It was cool. We're, the, we're like the tightest like black like now it's gotten so easy to get cool tight black pants. Back then you'd have to buy Dickies and take them to a tailor and be like you have to explain to somebody why you want to make these things like as tight as spandex. Not, wear, not yeah. wearable pants. Yeah, right. like by the time I put these on, I've cut yeah. the circulation off to like every major artery in my yeah. body. Yeah. So we would, we played shows galore up there and then started coming down to LA. And the idea was like, we wanted, we were so hungry. We we're like, with the dream of every young artist and band. We we're like, we want to fucking take over the world and travel and and um meet our heroes and and all of that so we uh started making trips down to la and and um in sending off our demo and in and like doing showcases back in the day where like people would rent out a club and and our people would show up like <laughs> three hours late and and be uh, on their cell phone the whole time and like maybe catch half of us half a song it was just such a different vibe every label passed on us at one point tori spelling's younger brother like wanted to start a record label and we were all excited because he wanted to sign us but it really mm. wasn't a label i think he just wanted to sign us so we'd hang out with them type of thing and at that point we're like fuck yeah we're game um but he, Anyway, we ended up signing with a with a better label called Ultimatum, who at the times their only claim to fame was they had um, Keanu Reeves' band Dogstar. Yeah, Dogstar was really actually oh. like a big LA band. <laughs> yeah. If you knew Dogstar, like they would, they played the Key Club oh, and they'd yeah, be playing like yeah. they were a big band. Yeah, for so, real. So we were label mates with Dogstar. <laughs> Never got to meet Keanu. I still think you know I would probably be frozen in his beauty. Uh, guy's ageless. Have you uh, have you been keeping up on like the feeds lately? He's like, yeah. Just, I mean, like he was. He's just in a movie recently where he played himself. I can't remember what great. movie it was. It was like there's a movie younger. recently where he plays himself, where it's like, and then she's like, she starts dating Keanu Reeves, and he's like, yeah, the guy's amazing. Yeah, he, they're actually redoing Bill and Ted's right now. Great. 
Yeah, they're doing Bill and Ted's three with him. Maybe they need some songs for the soundtrack. They do. We'll talk about it later. We'll do a side deal after this. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's it's weird when it comes to when you're aspiring to be a musician. Like you were saying, you know, have somebody check your contracts. You know, it's like you will take. On some level, I believe in walk through doors. If someone's going to open a door, walk through it. You know, within reason. But when it's Mid '90s, late '90s, and Tori Spelling's brother. When you're like, well, that's somehow one degree of separation from some of the biggest actors in the biggest TV show, with 90210, and like yeah. the, the dad is this like massive rich person. There starts to be this like weird logic game in that where you're like, well, had that happened, then they're probably worse record deals. You know, I mean, like all things yeah. considered, if you're in LA and you're an actor, you take whatever show you you, you sure. go, you audition, and you get in. You hope that you don't become the face of a, you know, like a a, a, a toilet paper campaign. But you would have taken that job, you know, because that's what you get. And musicians, it's like it's kind of the same thing. So if if you're in a yeah. band and and that band and some label offers you a deal, you want that music to come out. If they're willing to spend money on you and partner with you on trying to break you, oh yeah, know, for me, when I moved, so when I moved to LA, so I we had finally come down here and got a manager. I was working at J Crew out in Topanga, which I think is still might be there, and I was folding sweaters by day and playing like the Opium Den by night. I would show up. In in where the conservative part, and then the second I was out of there, putting on like black eyeliner and spiking my hair, and doing like Sid Vicious snarls and singing like cute pop punk songs. So it was a bit of a double life. And you're right, like like you know you're in at, at that time you're just hoping that man there's gonna be like maybe someone in the crowd that works at a record company and and you know might like a huge victory be like dude someone gave us a business card holy shit they may work at a label or have a roommate that works at a label um you'd sign anything yeah. like it was that or t- like my reality was you know and it's still the reality of of a lot of people so i i get it like it's like th- that a shitty record deal or deliver pizzas? I'll take a shitty record deal anytime. Yeah, you know. When did you realize that? You know, you start hearing Sugar called on like K Rock. You start. I mean, I know I jumped ahead a little bit. Yeah, no, it's good. We're there. But like, you know, you're hearing it. I assume your family is able to tune into some radio stations and hear it too, or at least they yeah. were able to see you. Um, did you ever think that the artist thing would? Stop or how was the relationship well, between the guys in the band? I yeah, mean- in the so, and everything is still like totally cool and PC and great with 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 the with the band, and we we're not nearly as active. We haven't played a show in in, in a long time, and we actually never said we're like the band's broken up. Just life kind of got busy, but what we ended up doing is, um, we toured for about ten years and made three records. And that that band brought me to places, and this is the one great thing about being an artist and getting into music. Like everyone has their own path and how they how they get here. Mine happens to be I was an artist first and did that, and that would was really my college. You know, um, we got to. It's like you have this all expense paid trip to travel the world. It's a shitload of work, and I will say that prepared me for the life that I have now. That's 
in production and songwriting, which is like super competitive. You have to have crazy thick skin for, a, which is hard for, you know, a, um, a sensitive weirdo like myself. But, you know, we toured for like, what you made three records, toured a ton, got songs on the radio, got songs on MTV, um, hosted shows, played massive festivals, opened for some of the biggest bands in the world, developed developed a following. And I think that that kind of taught us how to, and we were so young too, like my early 20s, literally went from working at J. Crew and doing like summer landscaping jobs and barely making enough money to buy Taco Bell with no add-ons. I mean, we're not talking like, there's like the Supreme menu is like 50 cents more. This was yeah. low-tech Taco Bell lifestyle <laughs> to then... And even though, like the advance, when we finally got an advance, when we got a record deal, was still pretty low dough compared to you know probably some of the stuff going on at the time. But and it's but, split. Yeah, you know, it's like you finally get the advance, and you're like, oh, we're we're good to go. And you're like, wow, this split three ways, and we better make some money on some of these shows eventually, and hopefully merch. Oh yeah, like, we, keeps you. We had six months. Yeah. We had six months in our advance before we had to then go back to jobs. It was like it was like forty grand not including paying taxes and all of the commissions and all that kind of stuff. So then broken out four ways and and you're like, you better be living real cheap because you got six months to 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 pull it off. So we made a record with Matt Wallace. The first tour we got was the Warp Tour, which Yeah, was right in like, right in its prime. Like too. totally in the prime. Yeah. And that was at the time like so perfect for the scene. And that is like another you know, experience that kind of informs how I work with artists now because we did so much touring and we never really had like a quote unquote like big, big radio hit. Um, they weren't, we didn't, you know, get to have like number ones, but we toured so much and we were part of a scene and we really tried creating a world for our fans um, and developed a, like a really loyal following that would pack shows and and this was like the type of thing that that not only was it um, were was our touring in America, but but we toured Japan a ton, and then toured like the UK a ton, and that's something that I I don't see a lot of bands doing now um, as much. Say on a first record, they really kind of focus on on the states. So so we did that for for um, for ten years, and and then um, the music you grew up on yeah. was pretty diverse sure. and. You know, there's diversity within the Warp Tour bands. To- yeah, and a, lot of, and a lot of melody too, a ton. There's a lot of melody, and we're seeing we're seeing a lot of that melody coming back through a lot of hip hop records now too. Sure, which I think is cool. Do you think that because of Sugar Cult and because of Warp Tour and because of you know the radio stations you would play with, that that influences? the kinds of artists you work with or is it just sort of like a coincidence? No, I because you, I think you're it does, like, yeah. You, you like, became I'm, like the guy who re- produces I'm, those bands. Yeah, I mean, I would say that my, my, my sense of familiarity and what I know is stuff that's a little bit more alternative. Um, but I love pop music too. You know, I want to try to, I love the, like, the, the, writing songs that live in an alternative space that might not be as tight sometimes as um, pop songs at, at, at all. But, but no, fuck it, I take that back. Now, I, I want to try to get to choruses quickly. Sometimes I just try to hide Well, one it. of the things you do, that I, the reason why I mention your intuition is super unique 
is that you, especially with the neon tree stuff, you would start the, you would end the pre-chorus with the the chorus. Yeah. You start the, you start the chorus earlier. You start bef- like not just before the one, but like you literally like. This gets pretty dorky, but like you, you would sing the the chorus hook is how you end a lot of the pre-choruses. Yeah, is that a, a moment, is that a design or is that th- just sometimes? You? Yeah, there was a moment there where we were doing this thing on on neon tree songs where we'd write a full chorus and then we'd figure out ways to even like take the take two bars out of the middle of the chorus so the repeat happens a little faster. And no one really caught that on on animal and everybody talks. I was waiting to get for us to get like kind of busted on it, but then again, what, they bust us for. For, yeah, the, for, for our own the compositional okay, yeah. police. <laughs> yeah, um, just just but, get like a random text from me, being like, "Yo, man, yo, you dude. can't do that. <laughs> you cannot do that." I'm calling you on it. I'm calling you out. You cannot do that. You're like, um, ah, busted. So, um, <laughs> such a weird scenario. Some, I mean, some of the stuff is totally. Some, you know, you can only plan so much. Some of it is pretty accidental, and. And I think probably the first time it happened with Animal, that was a bit of an an, a, uh, an accident. But, but you have to it trust worked. it because yeah. you know it's an accident then, but you could easily say, okay, well, look, we know, let's just keep adding to it. But instead yeah. you're like, no, nah, but it actually sounds pretty cool making that choice of, yeah, I that's probably a choice didn't, somewhere. I there. probably didn't think about it as much in the early days. Now I'm a little, probably a little more methodical too, you know, about about it. But but to, to get from Sugar Cult into producing records and even that part of my life it's really it's pretty funny because with neon trees they were one of the they were like one of the first bands that I had ever produced and and this happened in wrote with and this happened towards the end of 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 our last sugar cult record we had we had toured a ton and and we're probably kind of feeling a little bit crispy and on the last tour we had come across neon trees and they were just a local band playing in St. George, Utah. And there was just something about them that was like just electric and cool. And it was, it was the, at the time, the only original members now would be the singer and the, um, or sorry, the, the singer and the guitar player ended up um, staying and the two other guys um, went off and did something else. But uh, they were just really talented and, and I remember watching them play and there was all these crazy technical difficulties on the stage. But the singer like totally kept his composure and was super funny and charming. And I thought, you know, that was always the hardest part in touring where like when mayhem and chaos goes on on stage, which could, ha- which could easily happen like every other night at a club tour, how you're holding it together so the audience is entertained and having fun and there's banter holding it all together is like so critical to a, to a good performer. So I stayed in touch with those guys, Tyler um, specifically, and they ended up they ended up getting a, a deal like a f- probably six months later, and they were coming out to L.A. and they were like, "Oh, we should, um, you know, we're coming out to L.A. to work on some tunes." There's a couple of people that the record company wants us to meet. Would you want to get in the room and and you know work on a work on some songs together and 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 that was like one of my first honestly one of my first real co-writes so I went down to the studio earlier that day I kind of started putting together a, a, a little bit of a track just to be able to have whose idea was it to start co-writing or we just like oh let's well, write together it was I think it was a combination of the Evan at the label um sent them Evan Lipschitz at the label this is Island had had planned a trip for them to come out. And by the way, this is back, 
you know, this is 2009 when co-writing really wasn't the the thing, and and it was a little bit like for alternative bands, for for alternative bands, it was like it was not as received. You were like you were totally like the the secret in the in the back room as a as a. Why do you think that was? Well, I think some of it had to do with. You know, and 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 by the way, and I and I totally get it. Like the 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 artist, I think the artist wants probably to feel the, the a certain sense of autonomy that all of the 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 creative. And again, I'm not speaking for them because I've had an incredibly awesome relationship with them. We've done a bunch of records together, but I think in general, like if I were to sort of pull pull a lot of the bands that I worked with at that time, like. We would work on records, make records. I would be involved and write songs with a band, and they'd be asked questions about how did the writing come together, and would never get mentioned. And you would be like, "Whoa, man, that's you know." Did you fight for your for publishing at that point, or were you well, just sort of like, that, "Well, you know, I'm still a producer, and producers don't get writing credit." No, at the time, I, they, these were set up as writing sessions, but I think they just kind of kept the co-write stuff a little hush hush. It wasn't. Is um, yeah, it's just a di- it's just a little bit different than now, and and I don't know if it's alternative music, um, it's a kind of a genre thing. Um, when when something like Neon Trees starts to cross over, because that was a pretty big pop record. So that was, by the way. So what was crazy about that session? And these happen fucking once every like never. I mean, they're insane. So yeah, we sit down first time, real like honestly, like first time session, pretty much. Um, had a couple of other things before that, nothing that crazy. And I put together a little simple track and I was literally just like testing out like equipment, like, okay, does this drum beat work? Does this guitar align? Like, is everything tracking into the computer to be able to like then work on the real song? And Tyler, the singer walks in and he's like, oh, that's pretty cool. And it kind of had sounded like sort of a new wave strokesy type of song. And he sits down he just starts singing like, Animal, which was the first song that we ended up writing together, and that was a, ended up being a like a, you know fast forward a year, whatever it was six months later like a year. But at the time, I mean, I always thought that song was really was was super strong. But it was uh, it was funny we we did that song and ended up doing more with the band, and uh, I'll never forget after like writing like four songs together, they're like, oh, this is so awesome. So, you know, we're going to leave next month and now record the record with somebody else. And I was like, what? Oh my gosh. Thinking the whole time, like... You're producing. Well, yeah, we're, yeah. we're doing this together. And um, and they ended up recording it with somebody else on on the East Coast and it didn't turn out as, I don't think, as, uh, as good as, as, uh, as they wanted it. And they ended up coming back and we basically like... For the most part, kind of like remix the demos with a few live drums on it, and that was that was the that was the record. And Crazy. like even and even like when I go back and think about like the day that I this this just kind of keeps coming back in my life in general. Like nobody knows when songs are are hits. Like you just don't know. Like I sent the song in to the to the label and I, and I didn't hear back. I didn't hear back from them for like about a month and a half after sending in the song that ended up later on. Becoming like the defining selling song. like yeah, yeah three million copies and like defining you know my my career early on. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So what I was gonna say is, you know, you get this success in in songs that cross over and you see what pop is. Now I, I guess yeah. on some level what's weird is the success you had previous to that was from Sugar Cult. So the the amount of money you made from writing for Sugar Cult wasn't as much as you made from touring for Sugar Cult, I would assume, and merch and all the other stuff. Yeah. You know, and from record sales and all the yeah, other yeah. things you got. But when you start seeing what radio pays and then when you see what pop radio pays, did you feel like you should be aiming for music that was out of your wheelhouse? Was there ever pressure Not to be really, like? Uh, but I will say, yeah, the first time I mean? I got, the first time I got a a, a check uh, that probably reflected like a window of pop radio, I definitely had one of those keel over holy shit moments. You know, maybe a tear was shed. Yeah, like, like For it was. Sure. My goal was just to never get to a place where I had to deliver pizzas or not that. The, Maybe I'll do it one day as a hobby, but like I just didn't want. I wanted to avoid like I just had every shit job under the sun before getting into this, and like I feel like I never had a bit of a backup plan. So when I started having success as a songwriter producer coming out of Sugar Cult and these songs that were intended to be really just these kind of like alternative new wave, you know, almost kind of Strokes meets Depeche Mode inspired pop songs, we had no idea like. Holy crap! Like nothing about the project at the time was this. You know, some of these things now you hear about these these projects that are like a lot of A and R people are involved. You get like the whispers of like people from higher up going like, "We're really going to pull a trigger on this band and take it all the way." There was like none of that. It was just it took forever to climb, and it was like the number one most played song that year on K Rock. And then all of a sudden, like six months later, it broke some record of like the longest charting like or like the longest climbing song. And then and then all of a sudden it starts getting played on pop radio. And and there was a few songs at the time that were kind of doing a little bit of that, like that Owl City song that was like their breakout one. It kind of had a, a did a little a little bit of that of that. But there wasn't very there just wasn't as many models the way there have been at the time. Like there wasn't the fun song and there wasn't the pumped up kicks and there wasn't, you know, Imagine Dragon references where like really big alternative songs could cross to pop. They're just what it was so, so unheard of for that to happen. Um, and, and for me, you know, like how I write songs and, and what I bring to songs and, and, and what I try to bring to the productions, I'm just, I'm kind of doing my thing like I'm doing when when I try to do something that would say would be, sound like pop, it's probably by most people's definition not pop. Right. Um, it's through my my filter. So you know, there's certain things that I subconsciously do in my songwriting or production or or help influence 
in songs, I'm always trying to find a little bit of a left turn. I probably spend just as much time on a song trying to make it weird and doing the thing that you wouldn't expect as I would, you know. And that's something that's that I'm even now kind of kind of trying to unlearn a little bit because I have a four-year-old daughter and she listens to some of the most cool, simple music that I love, you know, and I'm like listening to Taylor Swift songs in the morning now going like, fuck, I really got to maybe just stick to this four chord thing. Yeah. There's something smart about that. And I ended up having a session the other day with Jean from St. Lucia where where we it was a kind of a perfect opportunity where I was just listening to the last uh, Taylor Swift song with my daughter in the kitchen and we were singing it at the top of our lungs making pancakes. And I had a session later that day and it was like a perfect opportunity where we were working on a song, having a bit of a stumbling block and in in like trying to write a verse. And the answer was, you know, hey, I'm not that inspired you know, he wasn't inspired. Let's try changing the track all, you know, to something different that might spark a melody. And I was like, no, man, let's stick to these four chords. Like, let's try it. That's where I think sometimes the discipline um, and the craft comes into play where, you know, certain types of songs happen and it's total divine intervention. And then other types of songs are written where it's like a bit of a grind and the craft and the like, and it's the... And it's the jigsaw puzzle that's worth fighting for. Yeah. Of course, I love the freebies more than anyone else when these fucking things just happen and it feels like you just got to pass in life. But <laughs> for the most part, most kind of, um, it's inspiring, you know, somewhere somewhere in that term. But uh, But I don't know, like... Being too envious is definitely such a slippery slope because, you know, you, tr- you like in the name of self-preservation, you try as hard as you can to try to, you know, not be chasing something to a point of being totally unhealthy and like totally. that can really get you fucking depressed. But, you know, there's a lot just there's incredible music out these days and there's a lot of music that's taking some just amazing chances. And I think that, <clears throat> you know, when I think about the last 15 years of music and where if you were to follow like from the life of a record producer writer going from like, you know, writing songs, sorry, writing, producing songs to tape to then Pro Tools to then Pro Tools and then awesome experimental things that people were doing in Ableton in their bedroom to like now this like we're in a in, to like EDM to now we're we're like I'm loving cool minimal dark pop. Um, I, I think we live in just a in a really interesting time for music. Sometimes I don't totally understand it. In those moments, I'm, you know, even though I'm an established producer, you have these moments where you're like, fuck, I, I, like, I need to do some, some deep digging. Like I'm not, I'm having a hard time getting what's so awesome about, about something if I'm not fully getting it. Like even, like I was listening yesterday on to like the little Nas X record with, um, my, um, a uh, young producer that works with me and I was like, okay, well, we, I don't fully, I'm not fully getting the songs, but I'm getting something out of it that I would love to bring to an alternative production, which is happening more and more often because I am in the hunt for sounds and things that will help inspire a co-write in the room. Cause that's, I feel like that's kind of my job. Like when I was in Sugar Cult, I was writing songs with an acoustic guitar, singing, and the responsibility was totally on me. Now now the sessions are, it's my job to inspire the room 
And I'll help participate, but I also typically work with artists that really enjoy writing lyrics and want to want to write and and so I occupy a different type of footprint in those in those rooms. Do you seek out those artists? I they, uh, I think so. Or, or do they seek you out for being someone that allows them to write? Pro, it's probably a little bit of both. You know, uh, most of my meetings come from, or most of my projects come from, hearing demos. I have to I, I have to be a fan of 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 anything I I work with, and I have to feel like that I can contribute in some way. And even if the contribution has helped define what they're doing, like you get the, and I'm sure this happens to to. To, to all of us, you'll get the Dropbox link of a bunch of songs and they are all over the place. And you're like, and, and they may be really, everyone's good in this town. They may be like really fucking compelling, super tight, pro sounding demos, but, but they're all over the place. If, if it was a, if, if their art and their music is a business, which it is, the audience has no idea who the artist is because it's like one song's they're just 10 different genres and all over the place. So sometimes my contribution um, when I'm meeting somebody is to help pull, like wrangle in a sound or identify glimmers of what I think could be cool and try to illuminate that. Um, and it, so I would say that like in this role and in this life of being a collaborator, producer, writer, it's um, I, I kind of have to wear a lot of hats. Um, and luckily with alternative music, the, the sound has changed so much that it probably started off at one point being dominated by a lot of bands, and now things are just feeling a little bit more more pop. And there's there's a lot of cool things that that um, have influenced you know um, alternative music that have helped um, that that have helped that. And I think a lot of pop records now are also even influencing a lot of alternative stuff. Yeah, it was it, I heard Billie Eilish on. K Rock today, and you know, reminds me of sort of when Lord was on K Rock too. And you're totally. like, well, it's a real fine line between what's alt rock, what's pop, and you know, when it, the old definition of what popular music is. And it's like, oh, yeah, it can, I know. It's, it's sort of a genreless yeah. thing. It's funny. Well, and, and it's, it is hard. Like, sometimes I have a hard time, like, like uh, also knowing, like, what's What's Alton? What's not? I've I've had a project recently where where it was where we were like having that discussion. Like I did a production and and it turned into like everyone's definite like needed to sound more alt or or whatever whatever maybe the the critique was. And it was like, well, wait a second. There's like by whose definition? There's like six different yeah. versions of what that even means now. Yeah. You know, and not and by the way, none of them are are, are right. And and for me, the 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 one thing I say is the songs that, the songs that I've worked on that have been hits or big hits, were never the sound of radio, at the time anyway. And that's that's yeah, something that's why that they like, suck out. and that's something that I have to remind myself too, because you know, like we can all f- feel like we're all guilty of like checking out when stuff comes out, New Music Friday, and you're like, fuck, this sounds so inventive and so futuristic, and gosh, I need to like up. Uh, and, I, and I and I probably went through a period last year where myself and Brian, who's a young producer that works with me, we just listen to stuff and be like, "Damn, this shit's sounding so like futuristic and crazy." And and we gotta and and you would maybe like spend a week trying to do push yourself in those directions, and then nothing would become of it. And then like when you're just being yourself, that's when things click. So that's something that I think is, I think it's something that's really important and 
And if I were to point to the records that I've had success at, it's when you're yourself. Like just be the absolute best version of what you do and and like stop the nonsense of the chasing. Like put an end to it. It will just make you miserable. It will um, you know, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna belly flop, it's gonna be on my own. I knew I knew this guy who uh, was a lawyer who um, their client didn't have the money to pay, but they had a Picasso sketch, and uh, the son found the painting underneath the bed. The sketch was like, "Why didn't you put this up?" And he said, "Because it's ugly." And it reminds me that it's like even great artists. It's not like everything they did was great. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. a, and it's it's important. It's so easy to look at the highlight reel and be like, "Oh man, these guys are geniuses," and and they are, you know. But what comes along with that is a lot of crap, and and an abundance of crap, and, and a majority crap. There are very few people where everything they do or a majority of what they do is genuinely at the level it needs to be. You have to put yourself out there. Um, and be afraid, or not, or sorry, and and not be afraid to suck yeah. for sure. And when you put in terms of like, I don't know if anyone follows baseball, but it's like a kick-ass hitter is batting three hundred. Yeah, that's a lot of misses. And by the way, that guy is like, if you're hitting three hundred, you're getting paid a lot of money. The, stand, the the fans are on their feet cheering when you're walking up to the plate, and you're like a badass slugger. I would say for some, and you were gonna get out seven out of ten times. <laughs> yeah, with that, yeah. my hard drive like is full of songs that you know. I even think some. Well, some of them are some of them are 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 shitty, and some of them even are are really are are good. But you know, maybe. You know, there was like the artist or the record label or all the things didn't kind of come together to help push it. There's a lot of also like... It was a like, hard line drive. There's it like was a totally, sn- snagged home run. It's like you could have all these Some things. of it's yeah. luck. Totally. Um, Last question before I get to the next segment. Um, only because I've asked two kind of significant questions with the OCD and Envy. The, you've mentioned a couple times how it's like you don't want to be a... You know, pizza delivery man. Sure. No offense to the people who deliver pizzas out there. What, I, I love them. My, and when they and when they come, the first thing I do is like kiss them on the lips and say thank you <laughs> for this pizza. It is going to fuel the session, yeah. and you'll get a room split out of it. Perfect. That's very sweet of you. Yeah. The um, <laughs> do you have PTSD with like not having from like, the business? You, like, do you still wor- <laughs> do you worry that you're going to end up back in that? Place of uh, of having those shitty jobs. No, not you- now. I would say, and if there was any advice I would give to people out there listening that are getting into this, when you make money, don't do stupid shit and buy a ridiculous car or um, Gucci head to toe, unless it's at the swap meet and looks super legit, but is like one fourth the price. I mean, because it it can look pretty fly, but sure. don't spend your money on it. Right. Um, when you make money, invest. You know, I know that's probably not the most rock and roll topic to get into, but but seriously, like when I, um, you know, something that's not really really talked about. I think a lot of times artists and songwriters are pretty naive. They're pretty um, left brain. That's creative, right? Left brain. I don't know. Sure, for the sake of this point. Sure. Yeah, pretty it's one, one of the two. Pretty pretty fifty percent chance. 
pre-left brain and don't really think about finances and when you make money, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to go out and buy the car? And it's, I think probably especially in a town like Los Angeles where it's like so opulent and so showy and, you know, I've seen a lot of people rip through their rip through their dough and um, and have to take on projects that they don't want to have don't want to do because of because of money. Um, be smart with investing. Um, I don't know if how it's a direct answer to your question, but the PTSD of going back to sometimes I say it figuratively speaking. I mean, I want to be my goal is to always feel like I was in, I'm doing everything I can to be inspired by the music I'm working on and able to. And, and I'm allowed enough bandwidth in the session with the people that I'm working on that I can be myself and make the song better and be able to um, filter it through my taste. It's why they're hiring me in the first place. People aren't people aren't calling me because of the songs that no one's ever heard of. I it's pretty obvious why I get the gigs that I that I do, and it will be you know. And a lot of times it comes down to like three or four songs in a career. And I try to make sure that I'm bringing what I brought to those songs to to everything that I'm working on, regardless of style. It doesn't matter what, you know, there's just a few kind of hard and fast things that I do in sessions or like... It or, takes uh, a lot of perspective to get to that point. And that I think is, you know, a, th- a thing that we talk about a lot is just... You know, my job right now is when it comes to this podcast is often looking at, you know, you talk about the highlights and you talk about the human and you realize that some of these people who are in the Songwriter Hall of Fame might have three songs, you know? They might have the song, if it's just one. They may have written 1,500 songs, but they have one song that works. Oh, yeah. And that's the reason why we're talking about them right now and and uh, the other side is there there are people who are very accomplished songwriters who've made a living and have never written that song or they have a lot of a lot of songs that are keeping him going oh yeah so you know the more the people who tend to have who've had a, a hit or two recognize how fortunate they really are because they, they know that there are a couple choices away oh, yeah. from if not I having didn't, that if i didn't have time between having hits i probably have a different like if if my success or my my career was just like hit 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 without space in between, it probably would have a different out, outlook on it. Yeah. But because they've been spaced out, um, you know, I have just a much different outlook about 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 that in general. Yeah. And you're and you're absolutely right. Like these some of these people have what gone had three three songs from the songwriter hall of fame and they were writing for 20 years yeah. i mean i go to the studio every day at 11 and my hours typically are like 11 to midnight and i am writing and producing every single day everything goes through the same filter you don't stop till like the hair stands up on the back of your neck until you you know when you in and, and and uh, you don't stop on an album till you feel like you have singles. Where well, I probably say this, this is like my mantra is: this is my I'm I'm quitting music if this song is a hit. Like there is no way the world is not a good place if this whatever the song at the time is. And um, most often it's not. And then you're on, but you're then six you're months on the past, next. You're, you're six months past that. By the time you realize, but then, that, you, yeah. but then you write another song. You're like, okay, no, no, it's going to be this one. I've yeah. changed. I changed. Uh, I've changed the song. But um, all right, so let's go to the next segment. Sure. 
Five for five. I'm going to name five things. You just tell me the first thing that comes off the top of your head. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm, you, you know, I'm so bad at... Yeah. For the record, for those who can't see what's happening here, our friend Tim here actually brought notes just just because he is OCD. Preparation. I made a couple of notes before coming yeah. over. Okay. I haven't. I haven't... Really looked yeah. at them. No, I was really but they impressed were a little, with you. They were yeah. like just my little. This this to me is like my version of and I'll here. Yeah. Let's see if it's cutting to the mic. It's like me making a track before the session. If I have a session at noon, I'm palm sweaty at the studio at 10 a.m. putting together two ideas so we can make the most of the day. All right, so let's go to this next segment right. because I, I pulled this out of that. But okay, five for five. Sugar cult. Road trips, high fives, hiding booze, and cubbies of an RV, and a hell of a lot of fun. Amazing. Tyler Glenn, Neon Trees. Bold, daring, inspiring, one of the most talented people I will ever meet. Pulse Publishing, and Jason Bernard. Amazing. Um, home base, a, a wealth of... Um, just ideas and and knowledge, and they were the first publisher that I signed to, and they took a chance on me, and we had had a lot of success together, and really positive experience. Your daughter? Oh man, that's like I'm about to cry. No, amazing. The best thing that could have ever happened. Some she having a family has given such balance to my life in ways that. It was the best decision I could ever make. And this is for someone that, you know, I was probably, um, I know you're looking for the one, one worders, but, but while we're elaborating, I think having, doing this type of job and choosing a career in, in something like this or entertainment or acting, like you just need, you need ways, to, you need, you need gravity in your life. And whether that's a great relationship with your parents or something that centers you and, and um, you chase a lot of shit that that doesn't mean a whole lot of anything. And we're just working on music, but having a family brings gravity to all of us. The best decision I ever made. Well, I was going to have your wife be number five, but I think that's fair. I think she deserves her own time on top of that. My wife, she's beautiful. She's so sweet. She makes me a better person, and uh, she puts up with so much. So much nonsense. I called her on the way up here because I was nervous about doing this. And I'm a caller when I get out of here and say it went fantastic. It's just the kind of relationship we have. Well, thank you for doing this. I said in the intro, the reason why I mentioned the, the writing camp in Aspen in 2012, and I looked it up to make sure that that was right, it was sometime in there, was because that was a really transformative experience for me. Because at that time, I was really just trying to figure out. I I was out of a band. Looked like I had some songs coming out, but I was the lowest on the totem pole. I felt like at that writing camp, you know, it was where I met like Luke Laird and Bonnie McKee's there, and there's yeah. like all these like legends. And um, I remember watching how people were at the camp, and I. I was so impressed that the way you treated people around you and the way you treated your own success as if it was uh, 
You just couldn't be less jaded or seemingly less jaded. The way you communicated your success was um, a product of being a musician and not like you were trying to you weren't trying to wear your success on your sleeve in that way. And I work really hard to try not to be like, to list my own resume Mm -hmm. because of my own insecurities. And to see, I remember right after that we went, I I went to your studio and you were driving, I think it was your, I want to say like your grandma's car. Yeah. Oh yeah, (laughs) the Pontiac vibe. My mom, my my wife made me sell it because it wasn't safe enough for a baby. Yeah. But it was a pretty, yeah. And and I just remember, you know, here here you're we're talking about LA and the 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 desire to fit in is 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 it's pretty overwhelming at times and, and you feel like you need to compete and and image and you you let your music do the talking for you and that takes so much chutzpah, you know. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's tough it's in a really town like this. To it's tough in a town like this. But the other day, I don't think, you know, your music speaks for itself and I don't think people give a shit. I think we put we invest a lot in these especially here, you know, these things around us, the, the cocoons, you know, whether it's nice clothes or a sweet car. And believe me, I, I've since upgraded. I drive a nicer car now, so I can't f- fully pull the faux humble um, ride anymore. But you also have earned it. My, the thing is you didn't go and you're not, you aren't um, spending beyond your means and when you're saying to as advice to a new writer to find investments, that's a way better advice than the person who's going to be like, you know, write, um, write your 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 best song is like it's it's totally that's 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 also good advice, but it's not. You tell someone to to make sure that they don't spend when they get their money is something they could actually use. Sure, yeah, and it's not I, the way you hold yourself is about. The fact that you go in at eleven and you leave at midnight, and that you care about where the hi hats go, and that is—that's what we were talking about before this, you know—and and that's who—that's who you are, and I admire that. It's so much about the work, and not about the result. It's so much about the process, and it's sure, so much yeah. about the execution. And you're when the when the hair stands on the back of your neck, you have achieved your goal. Not when the song went triple platinum or yeah, six no, time no. platinum. And yeah. that's what why I want to be like that. Oh well, thank you. That's yeah, thank you. That's it's all I know. You know, it's 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 my my reality. Um, it changes. You know, believe me, I have days where I'm, you know, the worst version of myself and probably, you know, looking at other people's success like we all do. I mean, we're all like being human, you have such different ranges of emotions in your, you know, but if but if I can live in that skin four days a week, I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, you know, today I'm going to head back to the studio and try to achieve those things on the on a production that I'm working on right now. And and um, and that's that is the most fun when I think about. Um, you know, when I think about the best times of the day, it's when you're doing that final last mix down. When you're like, "Holy fuck, we we wrote a song." It's pretty amazing. And by the way, like, kudos to the to songwriters out there. The fact that that 
songs get written in a day and then like produced out in a day is just so insane. Like coming from the artist world where you'd like torture yourself and try to write a song on an acoustic guitar and like barely schlack together like the most primitive verse in a chorus to nowadays, you know, we're making writing and making songs that could be released on the radio in one day is insane. Like it's insane. It defies like it defies it's everything. Magic. It's totally yeah. magic. It's like, like if you're doing that, if you're doing work like that, you are like very special and operating on a totally different level. But it's those, when I think my, the happiest times I have in the studio, it is that final play down. And then it's the car ride listen on the way home. And, you're, and those are, it's probably like the most peaceful, like blasting of music of, uh, of you know probably the best play down you know you're the first person that gets to hear these records like having worked on that on the recent blink stuff like being the first to hear like i was you know, listener number one on those songs you know that's a pretty incredible feeling those songs we took uh took back to studio those the, the pretty much the demos or the recordings that went down to that day in the writing of the of the of the song became the song that everyone's hearing you know so so sick yeah well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. This has been a great hang. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golden. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.